Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, the International Monetary Fund has cut its global growth forecast, warning that the expansion seen in recent years is losing momentum. Now, contributing to the slowdown, the organization cited increased trade tensions, political flashpoints, including a no-deal Brexit. Well, the IMF Managing Director, Christine Lagarde, joins us now. We've been talking about this interview all day. Tom and I have been, like, fighting over what we ask you, well, because for, you're really the highlight. It's only an hour long, okay. but that'll work. Yeah, yeah. Even, maybe we push it to an hour and a half. Madame Lagarde, when you look at the risks of a recession... If there are risks to a recession, where would they stem from? Is it China? Is it the U.S.? Is it Brexit in Europe? Okay. Today, our forecast is 3.5, yeah. 3.6 next year. And if you ask me, do you see a recession? I say no. Okay? So, if there was to be materialization of the risks that we see on the horizon, and the point is that this horizon is getting a little bit closer to what we had back in October, that's the reason why we slightly revised our growth forecast. If those risks were to materialize, then it's a different story. And you ask me which one of the risks uh, I rank higher, I would say that the trade tension, if unresolved, and if associated with the big question mark, would be my number one risk. Yeah. I think Brexit uncertainty and the big question mark yet again that we have on how it's going to be resolved, what is the time frame, what is the after-divorce uh, situation. I would put that as number two, but with probably um, major impact on the UK, uh, impact on the European Union, systemic risk, risks if the financial sector is not addressed. Um, and then I would have as a sort of subset of that first risk, in other words, trade tensions continuing to uh, increase, I would have uh, an accelerated moderation of growth in China. Did you see how clear those thoughts were? That's French schooling for you. Um, Madame Lagarde, when you look at China, how can we be so sure that it's not trade? I mean, that it's not, you know, that it is trade and not a, a more significant structural slowdown that would be much harder to deal with? You know, I would, I would call your attention to one fact. Although we have downgraded our forecast, the two countries that we have not downgraded are the US and China. So that was partly anticipated, number one, and it was partly um, remedied, number two. Remedied in the US because of the tax corporate, uh, the corporate tax major reform that has taken place and that has helped fuel additional growth, new jobs and all the rest of it anticipated by China with stimulus measures that were taken, taken in the last few months to compensate both the trade threat impact as well as the credit shrinking, which was welcome, necessary, and hopefully will continue a bit. Madam Lagarde, I want to go back to your public service in France and to Steve Bannon of the early Trump years and his homage to French fascism of 1905-1910, of course, all of that going over to Hitler and Mussolini and another far more troubled time. In your blue book, your green book, your fiscal book as well, there's no discussion of the new populism and this rise of the far right and elements or shades of fascism. What can your institution do to push against this new populism and some would suggest a new ugly populism? 
I think what we have done and we need to continue to do and probably be more vocal about it is the study of uh, inequalities, excessive inequalities, impact of inequalities on growth. And we started that, you know, I, I began talking about it four years ago. I said, watch out, inequalities you are did. growing. You did it at a yes. claim speech in New York and you went right after Washington. And we need to, you know, be vocal about that and we need, I think, to articulate the measures that can be taken in order to resist this acceleration of inequalities, both in terms of wealth and in terms of income. And there are good, sound tax and fiscal measures that can be taken in order to address those issues. Added to that, Tom, I think it's not just a fiscal, financial or economic exactly. phenomenon. I think exactly. it has lots of other uh, roots, ramifications, amongst which I would put uh, cultural disenfranchisement. I would put um, the threat of technologies and how it's going to take my job, displace me right. somewhere, and uh, the malaise that people feel as a result. The malaise in the Luddite state that so many people fear that we're in right now. Then the critical question and a delicate question for you in your position is the experience of America the Trump experience and other populist movements, can they be a one-off where we go back easily to some kind of normalcy or do elites and leaders have to do something immediate so we get back to normalcy? Is it a one-off? We believe that policies have to be taken to address the root causes of what has precipitated those movements. What I mean by that is address excessive inequalities, uh, address the issues of, I feel out of my job, the machines are taking over, yeah. artificial intelligence, much talked about here in Davos, is going to um, emasculate my brain and my capacity to deal with my destiny. All these issues have to be addressed as well. They're not all of an economic nature, but they have to be addressed because otherwise it's very easy to instill fear to raise angst, and then anything can go. Um, I'd like to ask you actually about how you deal with that, though. Is it tax redistribution? How do you make it more, more equal? Is, is there one country that does it better than others that everyone else could learn from? Well, you, there are many countries, but each country is going to have to deal with it specifically it. because some countries are prone to um, creating opportunities raising the level of education and health for people to actually aspire to a better future, better jobs, better training. Uh, other countries deal with it with a, a different tax system. What, what we're seeing on, you know, more and more is actually, you know, less income going to labor and more income going to capital. Uh, at the same time, we see less taxation of capital income than of labor income. So you have a confluence of those factors which need to be looked at because if we want to address some of the big frustrations uh, around there, that, that is part of the, of the remedies, yes. And Madame Lagarde, I also want to ask you about Brexit. Do we understand the ramifications of a possible no-deal Brexit? Is it a systemic issue? Is it a, is it, how concerning is it for, for the UK, but also Europe? What we know is that whatever the outcome, uh, whether it's a no-deal, whether it's a... Um, um, a la Norway, whether it's the custom unions with appropriate um, adjustment for the Irish border, uh, whether it, it will not be as good as 
what it is now. In other words, there will be additional frictions, there will be additional bureaucracies, there will be more um, uh, slow lane uh, for the traffic coming from Europe to the UK and vice versa. So none of it will be better, but some of the solutions will, will be a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole business community here, if you talk to them and us from our analytical work, we all agree that a no deal is you know, having very negative effect. We are mm -hmm. trying to model, and, and for what it's worth, we're looking at, you know, 8% less GDP in the medium to long term for the UK economy. It will shrink, that's what we see. Uh, and that's only at the macro level. If you look at the micro level, you talk to the uh, automobile manufacturers, you talk to the um, airline industry, you talk to the pharmaceutical industries, you talk to the, the, the food retailers of the UK, they will all tell you it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's terrible. We, we do not know how to deal with it. So it's, it's clearly of systemic importance for the UK mm -hmm. and it's also having consequences for the EU. Systemic or not, that will depend on, you know, how in particular the financial sector and its activities are dealt with, how much, uh, you know, reconciliation there will be between the two systems, who would be allowed to do what and what mm. the licensing system will be. I want to uh, bring it back to the idea of we've all got to get back together. It's a wonderful thing to talk about. It's a lot harder to do. You are the voice of a transatlantic world, a follow-on to when that seemed to be an easier process. The president flew to Paris, World War I remembrances, and couldn't get in a car to go out and see where many, many Marines died uh, bravely in World War I. How do we get back the transatlantic conversation that is so shattered right now? I hope we can get back that transatlantic conversation and dialogue and joint approach uh, to some of the critical Does it issues. take a war or can we do it in a peaceful manner? I very much hope that we learn from history and that what has happened in the past uh, will actually teach us that together, collectively, cooperatively, not all of us being exactly mm -hmm. on the same page can actually address those issues. It was Churchill who said, better chat, chat than yeah. war, war. And that's what needs to happen. We are, yeah. even more so today, we are facing right. the same issues, ranging from pandemics to terrorism, from cyber security uh, to uh, uh, financial market stability. Yeah. We have to address that together. One final question. Others talk, people do. You did. You hired a wonderful new director of economic research uh, to your uh, team. What is going to be the new spirit of the IMF for, uh, going forward in your economic research with Gita? Um, I think... Gita will um, bring her, her, her energy, her intellect, her youth, her determination to look at all issues. Including uh, the processes of putting things together. Process putting things together, uh, uh, some of the traditional uh, institutional views that we've had for a long time. And I don't think she's going to look at it with an ideological background at all. She's a researcher. She's a very honest person. Mm -hmm. She will look at um, data, impact, uh, collateral damage, and so on and so forth. And, and I very much welcome that. Madame Lagarde, thank you so much for joining us. That was the IMF Managing Director, Christine Lagarde.
Brian Moynihan joining me, the Bank of America CEO, and he joins me on Bloomberg TV. I want to take the opportunity to welcome in our listeners on Bloomberg Radio as well. Day two of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Very pleased to say the man at the top of Bank of America is going to stick with me for a little while as well. I want to talk about your business and the way investors perceive your business to be working right now. A lot of people look at the yield curve and say that this is going to damage bank profitability. What's interesting for me is that the net interest margin at Bank of America has continued to go up at a time when the yield curve has continued to narrow. Are we looking at the wrong thing, Brian? Well, people, people look at banking and, and get all involved in rate movements time to time. You have to step back and think about what it is. We, we provide services to clients. They give us their cash for transactional, whether they're companies, whether, whether they're wealthy individuals or general individuals. And we have a trillion for that. And so what the, the business model is that we give great services for that cash, and therefore people give it to us in interest-free accounts and checking accounts and, and low-interest accounts because they're getting 16,000 ATMs, 4,000 branches, call centers, uh, 25 million uh, mobile users, 35 yeah. million. So all those services come together. And so I think people, the confusion about the rate cycle is because it was so abnormal. We had to, rec we had to recoup a bit of profitability because we were subsidizing. And, and now we're back in a more normal, closer normal stat status. So I think that you know, our job is to drive more loans, more deposits. That'll produce more net interest margin. Is that another way of saying that you can keep the deposit beta really low because you offer so many services around the checking accounts? It's the, it is what the accounts are. They are zero-interest checking accounts. What beta can there be on is Half our consumer checking accounts are zero-interest checking Beyond that, I'm yeah. looking across all the accounts at Bank for America. But, the, but the, the dominant value in banking is driven off the transaction accounts. Low, and, and so that's what we drive and that's what we grow. So our checking balance is in consumer group 10%, or excuse me, $20 billion year over year, gross numbers. That's, you know, that's a strong growth rate, it's about in, in 7 8% or something like that. And so that drives a lot of value at a low cost, not because it's the, because of the service you're providing. And that's, that's the business model. And on the corporate side, it's the same thing, and it, you yeah. know, cash management uh, deposits. So we can keep driving a profitability as a company in a stable rate environment. It just it will really be driven by volumes, more loans, more deposits. If the economy's moving along, growing at you know, 2%, 2.5%, Everything will be fine. Things look good for you guys right now. I was looking at the Bloomberg terminal before you and I came up here. 22 buys, not a single sell on the stock. Overwhelmingly, the enthusiasm investors have for the financial sector seems to be there on the surface. Then I can't reconcile record profitability with your stock performance over the last year. Why do you think some people are looking at your stock differently to the way the bottom line looks at Bank of America? The profits look good. The stock performance over the last year, less so. Why? Largely, the industry got caught up in the question of can we grow earnings in the context of a, a, rate, a, a tip, uh, economy slowing down. And that, that's the debate. We can. Looking at FIC trading, FIC trading's been tough. Uh, a lot of people will come on a program with me and say what the banks need is volatility. They did that for a number of years. Then we got the volatility. And the banks, many of them, and I'm not including you in this, but the word I would always hear is bad. Bad volatility. What is bad volatility? Uh, I, we, we run... If you look at our capital markets business over the last six, seven years, you've had a range of revenue from 12.9 billion to 13.6 billion over like six or seven years. All the years, all different environments, think about different quarters come out different ways. We run that business in a way that Tom Montag and the team do a great job of taking the right risk and just moving. And we do it in support of our customer base, our issuing customer base, companies issuing debt, and our investor customer base, customers buying debt. And then the equity business, Fab uh, Gallo and team done a good job, and that's come up. So, yeah, we, we made uh, 500 million bucks in uh, capital markets after tax in the fourth quarter.
nearly $4 billion last year. It's a great business. And so, yeah, yeah one quarter, actually one month, it was a month of December, wasn't too pretty. But, you know, you get back to January, people get back to work and things start working through. I remember catching up with Andrea Rochelle. He was at UBS at the time a couple of years ago, and it was right before we got the first rate hike of the Federal Reserve. And he was nervous that a lot of his trading floor had never seen a tightening cycle from the Fed. They'd never experienced a big bout of volatility, and how would they be able to operate and generate returns in that environment? Do you think there's an argument to make there that maybe some people are struggling with something they've just never seen before because of the age, the average age on the trading floor? I, I'm not... Our average age on the trading floor, you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but I, I, the people in that trading floor, the good news is a fair amount of them went through the crisis. They understand what to do and not to do and what risk to take and not to take in our risk manager practices. Yeah. That's more important than, you know, than understanding the rate cycle. So it, it, there is a, you know, nobody, if you think of the rate environment changed, you know, at the time of crisis, it's 10, 10 plus years. There's a lot of people who are, anybody under 35 has really probably never seen this kind of environment change. But the reality is, they'll learn it quickly. Well, let's talk about risk management. What's your approach to leverage loans at the moment? Really competitive space, a lot of people aggressively chasing mandates. There was a sign in Q3 that you guys were maybe taking less risk, maybe le being less aggressive. Right. What's your view now? We, we, we've always been consistent. We haven't changed our risk one way or the other way. So we, and we have a good, a very good business to that. It's one of our bigger, better businesses on a relative scale. Now, a lot of that business went to other uh, participants in terms of uh, back in the guidance by the OCC and stuff. Like that. But we really pretty much stuck to our netting. It's a moving business. We underwrite for those issuers and send it out to the investors. That's our, our posture. So it, it locked up in the fourth in December. It's not even October, November, really December. And, and so there's no deals done and, and we'll get them done. Uh, you're optimistic in that space specifically for the rest of the year because 2018 was huge going right up towards the end of the year for supply and for underwriting. It was a big boom for the banks as well. Can we have another 2018 through 2019 in that space? I, I, you know, we'll see. It, it's going to be more how the equity, you know, the participants and the, and the deals and things like that. Um, but it's a it's a market we're in, but we're on we're in high grade. The nice thing about our franchise is with 13 billion dollars of markets revenue attached to 90 plus billion dollars is of real revenue from all the other businesses is something something will go right something will go wrong but the idea is just keep plowing through so if leverage finance is not as strong this year high grade may be better the other, uh, fx may be better all those things play in and out but the way we play it is to just keep serving our clients and moving them moving. on the buy side there's some nerves around this space though in yeah. leverage loans if you were to have a dashboard what would you be looking for for certain risk to materialize to to pair back risk to tell some of your teams to be less aggressive on the mandates my point is we, we don't change our risk posture what, what, the idea is we have risk parameters that we set from the board to, yeah. uh, to the management all the way down, all the way down to the desk, all the way down to the underwriting. And so we don't, we don't, take, we don't say, oh, let's decide to add more risk today or subtract more risk. We do more by volume because there's just more activity. But the individual deals, the way we think about underwriting is fairly consistent because at the end of the day, leave aside syndication market, but you go back in commercial lending, you know, those credits are going to live with you for multiple years. And so what you're going to do in 19 first quarter will make no difference in 19. What you did in 15 makes a difference. And so that's why you have to have consistent risk. So final question for you, Brian. I think many of us, and I don't know about yourself, but I speak for me, have spent much of the last few months talking about downside risk. Can we just finish by talking about upside risk? What's the big opportunity for you guys in 2019? For, for our company? Yeah. Which is continue to drive responsible growth and, and, and use these capabilities, the $3 billion to invest in technology every year, the capabilities that come on, whether it's on the consumer side, whether it's in wealth management, new digital capabilities in wealth management, uh, or in a commercial space and cash pro or cash management products. It's just to drive those products out there. And 
there's just so, and we have, we, we are a big company, but we have small market share. I mean, in a relative sense, so we, in, in terms of absolute sense against the, against the markets, and we have lots of market share to gain. And the upside is just to, that our success might be better than we project because the competency and capabilities of the team and the, and the tools are, are better for clients. Brian, always great to get your insight on the global economy and, of course, on banking in America. Brian Moynihan, the Bank of America chairman and CEO. Thank you very much, sir. This is always a joy in any number of ways to speak with Steve Pelica with Bain Capital, associated with a small basketball team up in Boston as well, and truly one of the most interesting guys in investment in America. Wonderful to have you here today. And, you know, like uh, Mrs. Tom Brady or, or Mr. Giselle Bündchen, whatever, he is a slave for fashion here in Davos Valley. Steve, Canada Goose, and it's a newer coat, and you're, you're the brand ambassador this year. Uh, I, that, that'd be exaggeration, but I, I love the company and the CEO, Danny Reese, has done a great job on our team, and it's now a worldwide global company, and it's fit, fitting to wear this in Davos. It's actually the first time I was ever warm in Davos was when I wore his coat. Oh, very That's nice the endorsement there as well, but I want you to explain your pixie dust, and when you go into a company, and you don't tear management apart, you don't blow it up, you assist them to a branding, a revenue, and an operating income success. Give us an example with Canada Goose. Well, that's a great question, Tom. I, I go all the way back to the founding of Bain Capital. Uh, we were very unique, at the, it was still unique, we were unique at the time because no other private equity or venture capital shop spawned out of a consulting firm. So the theory Bill Bain had was you could take the consulting skills that were building companies long term, buy them directly and work with managements as, as a kind of a tool for management to help build those companies. So that was 35 years ago. And at the time, no one thought that would work. It, it took two years to raise $36 million. It's laughable these days. Yeah, yeah. But two years, and I think only one institution, one smart institution, Bessemer, put money in the fund. Yeah, but come on, my closet at home, John Farrell, is loaded with Canada Goose. So let's, How did that okay, happen? I'll, I'll, let's talk about what's changed. Okay, what's changed okay. back then, it was harder to raise capital. It was easier to deploy it. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's easier to raise capital. It's harder to absolutely. deploy it. So how do you deploy it right now? Well, it's back, back to Tom's story. What we've done in situations numerous times through three years like Canada Goose, we first met a great entrepreneur. He wanted to take the business global. Uh, he was from, from Canada and, and had been a great business up there. We have a great retail consumer team led by Josh Beckenstein and, and Ryan Cotton, and we laid out a vision on how we could help him uh, get global, how we could help him get into storefronts, how we could help him with the supply chain, uh, how we could bring a retail playbook to make this be a large global company. And he really liked that idea, and so he kept a, a lot of the company, and, and we, we bought about 60% of the company at the time. And now the company is a, is a multi-billion dollar company, global. The plan has come to fruition. He's still running the company. Yeah. It's so bad that Bill has Canada this Goose. This is Tom's dog. My dog has this Canada Goose. Dog. What is that I'm about? I'm not sure that's an authentic Let's go off on Canada a different Goose theme. Dog. Oh, it's Canada Pooch. Yes, it's Okay, there's a copyright issue sure there. That's, Pick it up. <laughs> Pick it up, John Farrell. Steve, I, I believe you guys recently took over Harvard University's real estate portfolio. A lot of people raised some eyebrows and thought, a real estate portfolio now, this late in the cycle, why? It was a great match. We had been looking to get into real estate for probably 30 years. I was on a project 30 years ago to look at it, and we never thought it was the right time of the cycle because it's, it's gone up and down. Uh, Harvard had an issue where they decided they're going to outsource investment management, not doing it internally. The Harvard group had a very similar philosophy that we have at Bain Capital. 
really add value, look for unique product lines. So they, the, the group over there was focusing on medical offices, focusing on bi the biotech industry. We saw a lot of growth and profit in that, doing that selectively. Uh, they were only three miles down the road, so this was a seamless transition. One day they were at Harvard, all 20 people came, came to Bain Capital. Uh, we understand real estate, we have all companies that need real estate, and that this niche strategy we felt could kind of power through the, a potential recessionary approach in real estate. Final question for you, Steve. Why are you excited about deploying capital right now? Going back to the earlier point that you can raise capital great, but deploying gets challenging. Where's the big opportunity right now for you? What are you excited about? Well, it's really challenging right now since the markets have been at the top, although we've seen a little bit come down in the last few <clears> months. But uh, look, I've, I've talked to you guys from in the 80s, the 90s, uh, 2000s, and every time, I, literally in all those years, yeah. every question is, there's yeah. too much money chasing too few deals. So what really has happened globally is private equity has gone global. It's a model that works. Certainly the bank capital model with vertical markets and helping management teams grow right. business work. You just got to be selective in this environment. Selective is the key. And now for the tension of Davos, Rams or Patriots? Absolutely Patriots. What shots? <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Lord, a surveillance breaks loose of there. We're going to get the headline across the, the bottom of the, of the screen there, Tom, and we can it, get the headline been, out of the it book. Has been a great, it's been a great 20 years to be. <laughs> oh, here we go. This, is, this interview will be extended. Shall we carry right this now? on in the commercial break? <laughs> Steve Paliuka of Bank Capital. Great to catch up with you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Great to from be here, Steve Paliuka from myself, Jonathan Farrow, and Tom Keane. It is ultimately about the markets and the positioning of global Wall Street within those markets. There's no one better to speak to than Scott Miner of Guggenheim, of course, joining us on our Fed days with a more of a Wall Street perspective on the Fed. I want to avoid the Fed talk, Scott, to get started. Mr. Moynihan just darkened the door and, and talked to John Farrow about banking forward. Let's take American Wall Street right now. How bad will the cost rationalizations be? Guys like you have to make tough decisions. Are they going to be made in this quarter? Uh, I think so. I think uh, everybody sees the window open because we've had the big people like BlackRock come out and say they're going to do staff reductions. So I think the, everybody in the industry sees their moment and they're going to take advantage. Of it. How lean are you guys right now into those cost cuts? I mean, is it is it there's divisions that can be moved out or is it going to be micro cuts here and there? Uh, I think that it, it's going to be more micro cuts strategic, uh, you know, or surgical. I mean, you know that, uh, you know, we sold our ETF business uh, last year. So, you know, there's a, a bit of redundancy, but uh, we're not going to take it like some of the big guys do. Scott, I want to talk about what you were doing in the depths of December when things looked really ugly and we saw some really gappy moves in places where maybe you shouldn't be getting big moves like that. Right. What did you guys do over at Guggenheim? It was tough, uh, John, because, uh, you know, you wanted to uh, adjust the risk based upon the volatility. And uh, unless you were trading really uh, liquid on the run stuff, uh, you just couldn't get good prices. Uh, you know, uh, the bank loan market would gap on very little supply. A couple of million dollars of bank loans would move the price by a point or two. Uh, the same thing in uh, uh, asset-backed securities. I want to emphasize that the conversation that John and Scott Miner are having <laughs> right now is really, really important because there's all the economic blather and the reality. Show no, I'm going to promote your show okay. in a moment, but but this is really serious, folks. This is the reality. As you heard Mr. Miner there talks, John, about liquidity, yeah. and you lose a point and everything changes away from what GDP's doing. Well, you know, what's really amazing to me, Tom, is to watch in the wake of that last Fed meeting that 
how crowded and congested the exits got when people started to move in that direction. It really is a warning sign because when we get to a recession, it's going to be tough. Scott, you and I talk about things like leverage loans and your ability to get in and out. Communicate to our listeners, our audience, our viewers right now, how difficult it is actually to trade loans, how long it takes to actually close that trade. Well, I mean, it, on a good day, you can close it in two weeks. Uh, you know, typically, weeks. yeah, something delays it, so it'll take maybe three weeks, uh, even four weeks to, to clear a loan. I mean, that's a real challenge when you get into some of these more liquid products like ETFs because the uh, ETFs provide you next day liquidity. So if uh, you're trying to liquidate loans in an ETF to get out, uh, you, and we did see it uh, in the sell-off, you can start to see gaps of NAV below. Right. The, the price. How was that different yeah. than what you experienced in August of 07 and into Bear Stearns and the rest in 08, 09? What was unique this time versus what everyone remembers? Well, I mean, this time around, Tom, uh, I think the ETF market, the mutual fund market has become a much bigger player in these more exotic and beneficial player. Well, uh, beneficial from the standpoint that uh, one, it gave asset management firms an opportunity to make more money. Two, it allowed retail investors to get into a market that is traditionally an institutional market. But having said that, uh, given the amount of uh, money that is concentrated in some of these more exotic fixed income products now that are in mutual funds and ETFs that yeah. were not there before, it's making the volatility uh, in these uh, downdrafts uh, much more difficult. Scott, who's holding the risk? Uh, that's a great question. Not I, for surveillance, that would be a question for the real yield. You can see it with John Farrell. Friday's 1 p.m. What did you say? Who's Eastern holding time. the risk? Who is holding the that risk? That is jargon. I love that jargon. That's great. Scott, please. Who is right. holding the risk? Well, the, I mean, it, it depends on how you define risk. Yeah. If you look at the leverage loan market, if you're an institutional player, you're just going to ride this out. But if you're someone who is uh, trying to rebalance your portfolio, like an, uh, a retail investor, somebody has a 401k plan, and you want to get out, you hold the risk. This is critical. This goes back almost to reserve fund, to the money market funds of 30 and 40 years ago. Someone is going to have to hedge that risk. Regulators, the government's going to come in and say, this is not appropriate for retail. So how do we work through this? Well, I, I think that the regulators need to take another look at these products, not to get rid of them, but to, to try to get rid of the liquidity transformation that's occurring of taking something that's a fairly illiquid security and turning it into something that's highly liquid with next day cash. So I want to know where we're going in the leverage loan space and who's going to get the buying power, so to speak, or is it the sellers still with the power? We've seen a lot of these increasingly come to market covenant light. We've seen the banks and this, this space become very competitive, so they're aggressively chasing the mandate. What does this look like later this year? Is it, does it become a buyer's market? Do we start to get better covenants in some of these deals? Or does it get even worse? No, I think it gets even worse, Sean. It, it, when you look at last year and you see the incremental issuance of new leverage loans versus the incremental issuance of CLOs, they basically, all the new incremental supply of loans went to right. CLOs. Those people, in many cases, have sold the risk away. So... All they are looking for is, is to get the assets so they can right. manage and charge the okay, What you just said there is an 07-08 memory. They sold the risk right. 
away. Right. Are, are, are you just suggesting that we're going to fold ourselves into another 07, 08, 09 set of events, non-sequential, non-linear events like we did then? I, I think so, I, Tom. I think it, it won't be hopefully nearly as extreme. But, uh, you know, let's let's be careful, too. Relative to the subprime market, the CLO market is much smaller, and it's largely held in the hands of There's no AIG out yeah. there. That's right. Yeah. But I do think that uh, uh, the price gaps are going to be just as uh, nauseating as they were in, in the 08 experience. Hey, Scott, really great to catch up Was this up a very undavos conversation? I, I, think it was, I think that's what made it a great conversation. Very good. Because <laughs> it wasn't a very Davos conversation. <laughs> Scott Martin at a Guggenheim. Great to see you, buddy. Thank great you, to John. catch up, as always. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.